you have your Bible, if you would stand with me, I'd appreciate as we read through Titus chapter 2 this morning. Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read all 15 verses, although we'll be spending our time this morning in the first three, but at least we'll kind of have the big picture of what Paul is addressing in this chapter. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul here is writing uh, to his friend and his pastor that he's left in the island of Crete. And he says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, excuse me, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for, again, the opportunity to dig into your word and to study your word and to teach your word. And I pray as we think this morning on what it means uh, to be an older man or an older woman in the church and how that looks, I pray that you would give us wisdom, uh, you would give us discernment, and that we would put into practice the things uh, that you instruct uh, Titus to instruct the church, which has been carried down now to us. I pray your blessing on our service in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On occasion, I have heard pastors and even church people say something like, you know, I I really wish I just had a church of young people. If we could just get rid of all the old people, we'd be a lot better off. I think it's a mistake to think that way Uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, one day you'll be old too. (laughs) So uh, let's not get rid of all of them just so quickly. Uh, And secondly, I think the church needs both young and old in order to function well. The older have wisdom and they have experience that they can impart to the younger generations. And the younger generations have energy, they have idealism, they have that enthusiasm that kind of motivates and spurs on the older folks. And so I think the two go hand in hand. Now, anytime you put 
older folks with younger folks, uh, anytime you put great-grandma Ethel with great-grandbabies, there's going to be tension at times, right? Um, But God's plan is for us to work through that tension, uh, to live in harmony so that mutually we build one another up, whether we're old or whether we're young. So that's the point of Paul's chapter 2. In chapter 1 of Titus, uh, Paul was looking at leaders And he said, here's what qualifies to be a leader of a church. Here are all the characteristics of that individual. Uh, Here are false teachers, and here's what they look like. And then he gets to chapter 2, and he says, okay, now we've we've dealt with leaders and what they should look like. Here's what members should look like. Here's what the church body should look like. This is what chapter 2 is all about. And before we dig into kind of the individual pieces of chapter 2, I want to at least give us some broad strokes over the chapter so we have kind of in our mind what Paul is going after here. Chapter 2 of Titus is a very practical chapter. It's not one of those chapters that has as much deep theological truth as it does just how you live day to day. In other words, it says, okay, you know all this stuff in your mind, what you should believe, but here's how it looks. If I would walk into your house on Tuesday, or if, or if we would see you at Walmart on Thursday, here's how we would expect a member of the church to look like, to act like, uh, in, in light of what they believe. So chapter 2 is a very practical chapter. If you look at verse 1, you'll see it. Verse 1, he says, But as for you, he's speaking to Titus, As for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And the word teach there that he uses is not the typical word teach where it means uh, to speak, but the word teach that he used there means to live it out. So Titus, here's what I want you to live out. And he says, and here's what it is. I want you to live out what accords with sound doctrine. So he doesn't have in mind really for Titus, in this chapter at least, to have this formal setting in which he's teaching these things. He's not expecting that you hand out three ring binders to all the older men and all the older women and say, okay, this is how you should act. This is what, what you should, how you should live your life. But he's saying, show them. Teach it. It's a living out, if you will, of those things that accord or fit with sound doctrine. Because if you believe certain things... If you hold to certain things as truth, then the reality is is that is going to play itself out somehow in how you live. So Paul says, here's what I think that it should look like whenever you live your life on a day-to-day basis. And there's a reason for that. If you look down in these verses, Paul three different times gives a purpose statement for why people should live in this godly way, this way that accords with sound doctrine. If you look down in verse 5, he gives the first purpose statement, and he says, number one, that the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, you don't want to bring disgrace, dishonor upon the word of God. If you look down at verse 8, he says, so that every opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You want to live in a certain way so that when opponents of the faith, when, when people who oppose you, when they look at your life, they can't find anything to kind of latch on to. They can't say anything evil about you because of the way you've lived. And then the third time, down in verse 10, he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul recognizes this, 
Paul recognizes that the credibility of the Christian gospel is tied to the integrity of those who claim it. The credibility of the gospel is tied to the integrity of those who claim it. You see, the world is watching, right? The world's watching. You've heard this. Oh, you call yourself a Christian and you do that? The world's watching. They know what label you apply to yourself. And that is why the world gets such a kick out of the tragedies that occur on occasion in the Christian life. If you watch and and you see a high-profile Christian stumble and fall in this really ugly way, it gives opportunity for opponents to say, See, that gospel that you proclaim is worthless. It's nothing. The world watches. I remember early on when someone asked me what church I pastor. And I told him, I, well, I pastor at Providence Mennonite Church. And to which this gentleman replied, oh, doesn't so-and-so go to church there? I said, yeah, he does. And this guy said, don't expect anybody at your church then. That's the most crooked man I know. The world watches They see. And the integrity of the life that we live speaks to the gospel that we profess. So it's absolutely critical that when we get into this chapter, we understand it and we live it. Because it tells the world about our Christian faith. Big picture. The other thing I think that we need to think about as we head into chapter 2 is this. There, will, there are some who will argue uh, that there are no gender distinctions in the body of Christ. They'll often point to Galatians 3.28 as kind of the proof text. And in Galatians 3.28, it speaks of salvation, and uh, salvation is open to both men and women. There's no difference uh, when it comes to salvation, and I would agree with that. There's absolutely uh, no difference uh, in the faith of a woman or the faith of a man. But Galatians 3.28 does not address the roles of men and women. And when you get into chapter 2 of Titus, what we're going to see are distinct roles that God lays out. He tells Paul, or Paul instructs Titus, here's what men look like, here's what women look like, here's how they act, here's how they conduct themselves. And so I think that at the same time that we celebrate the value of men and women, At the same time, we rejoice in these God-given roles that God has given uh, to men and women. So we'll look at those together as we journey uh, through this chapter. Paul lays it out in kind of this order, and he says, I'm going to talk to the older men first, I'm going to talk to the older women, and then following that, he says, I'm going to talk to the younger women and the younger men, of which Titus is one of the younger men. Uh, And then finally, he concludes, at least in this first part, with a few words to servants, to slaves, uh, to what we would uh, maybe associate with employees today. So that's kind of the layout. Now, we're only going to have time to deal with the older men and the older women uh, this morning. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the younger men and the younger women. Uh, and that's uh, part is purposeful because if I can spread out the nasty grams that I get um, over the next couple of weeks, it'll be good. So I'm going to kind of spread these out a little bit, okay, so they're manageable. Uh, so we're going to look at the older men first, and then we'll talk about the older women, okay? Verse 2, older men. Older men are to be sober-minded 
dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's the instruction to older men. Now, the first question that we have to ask is, how old do you have to be to be an older man, right? We kind of need to know that. How old do you have to be to be an older man? Well, when Paul was writing in the New Testament, he wrote the book of Philemon. He was in his 60s, and he referred to himself as an older man. Okay, so I suppose you could say, well, at least when you're in your 60s, uh, Paul would consider you to be an older man. One commentator said that in the Greek world in which Paul was writing, there were really only two categories of people. There were the young and then there were the old. And this commentator said 40 was kind of about the cutoff. And so if you were 40 and over, you were considered older. If you were under 40, you were considered younger. I don't know. Does that make me an older man? I'm, I'm almost 40, um, so maybe I'm an older man. Um, a lot of you guys know last week I had a salesman come to our door, and he knocked on the door, and I opened it, and he said, Well, hello there, young man. Are your mom or dad home? I thought, wow, you'll see the gray over here. And uh, so I don't know. Maybe I'm younger. Maybe I'm older. I'm not sure. Uh, one pastor said that there's only three stages in life, youth, young adult, and my, you're looking well. And if someone says that to you, then you know which category you're in, right? So I don't know, older men, let's, let's assume they're 40, 60, somewhere in that age, okay? Older men. Six things that Paul says here characterize or should characterize older godly men. And he lays them out in groups of three. Number one, he says, older men are to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. Generally, when you run across that in Scripture, Paul is talking about abstaining from strong drink or abstaining from wine. And he probably has that in mind here, too. Although, I think when he says sober-minded here, he probably is thinking a little bit broader than just terms of alcohol. A person who is sober-minded is a person who's temperate, He's restrained. He doesn't do things to excess. A sober-minded person understands what are the important things in life. This is why when you see an older guy flying down the highway in his convertible Corvette, the first words out of your mouth are what? (laughs) Midlife crisis, right? Why? Because when you're young, you chase after some of those things like cars and hobbies and money and style and clothes, all those things. This this is what happens. It tends to be a, a temptation for younger people. But when you're older, the older a person gets, the more they realize what's really important in life. And so the things they value are things like relationships discussions and serving one another and loving one another. There tends to be, in an older godly man, a soberness about life, an understanding, a a perspective on life that says, I know what's valuable and I cling to those things. And yeah, all these other things, they come and go. But here are the things that are important. It's a sober-minded person. Paul said he's also dignified That means he's worthy of respect. That means he's honorable. 
That means he's serious. It doesn't mean he never laughs. Of course he laughs. He loves a good joke. He loves to enjoy life. But there's a dignity about him that when he speaks, people listen. And you probably know these kind of individuals. Soft-spoken, perhaps. Maybe they don't say a lot. But when they say something, it's as though the room just kind of goes quiet and you listen to what this man has to say. Because he's dignified. He's respectable. A dignified man lives in light of eternity. An older man realizes that he's not going to be on this, on this earth forever. He only has a few short years and he's going to be there with his Savior. He's going to be standing before God. And when an older man was a younger man, he used to think of himself as invincible. And he used to think of himself as, I can change the world and I, I can do all these things. And he had all these dreams and all these hopes. And those are wonderful. But as he matures, he also understands that at the same time, the human heart is capable of some awful things. And if there's one thing that he cannot fix on his own, it's the human heart. And so he has this soberness about him, this seriousness about him, when he realizes that people are sinners, and they'll go from bad to worse. And there's this reverence about him, because when you're around him, he acknowledges the own, his own sin in his own heart. And he says, I have a Savior. He's the only one that can fix me. He's the only one that can fix this. A dignified man trusts in Jesus, the Jesus who lived and died and rose on his behalf. And this man has repented of his sin, and he lives in light of that, and he wants others to know about the truth of Jesus Christ. And so when he speaks, he has this reverence about himself because he knows that life doesn't go on forever. And if there's anything you need to know, the most important thing you must know is about the Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's quick to speak about him. He's dignified. He calls his family to repentance. Thirdly, Paul says that older men, not only are they sober-minded and dignified, but they're also self-controlled. This overlaps a little bit with the previous two, but it adds another dimension. This kind of man, a self-controlled man, he has gone through all the experiences. He has developed this strength of mind and this grip on truth and this devotion to what's right that he doesn't waver off into these uncontrolled areas of life, these passions of life. He knows how to live self-controlled. He's focused. He can manage his instincts. He can manage his life. He can manage his time because he knows what's most important and he knows the purpose for which he's running his race. Now, how do all those things happen? How does a guy get to that point where he's all of these things? I think Paul answers that in this uh, next trilogy of descriptions. He says, he's sober-minded, he's dignified, he's self-controlled, but here's the next three things. He's sound in faith, he's sound in love, and he's sound in steadfastness. In other words, he's solid in the doctrine. He's solid in the word of God. He loves God. He loves people. He knows how to bear up under life's trials. And this man has a solid hope 
in the promises of God. He's sound in faith. He's sound in love. He's sound in steadfastness. He's been through it. He perseveres. I think one of the greatest tragedies, probably, of old age is when people get old and they become unloving and bitter and kind of selfish. You know, it's that, that grumpy old man that everybody's kind of afraid, afraid to be around. He's just, he's just kind of mean. And I used to say that I wanted to be that old man. I wanted to be the old guy that just farts whenever he wants and then mumbles something under his breath and everybody just says, ah, he's, he's old, just let him go. But you know, as I was reading through this, I was a little bit convicted. So what a tragedy to be that old guy, that mean, nasty old man. Alistair Begg says that older people, older men, tend toward one of two extremes. They either become the clocked-out, old, sentimental guys who just don't care about anything. Everything's grand. It doesn't matter. Whatever happens, happens. Or they become those cranky, old, grumpy people. And the only thing that keeps them from becoming either of those two extremes is the grace of God in their life. Because the grace of God is what keeps an older man balanced. It's the grace of God that will cause an older man to love people because he recognizes that he himself has been loved. And so as he feels and experiences that love of God, he's not mean. He's not grumpy. He's not hard to get along with. He loves people. He's sound in love because he's sound in doctrine. He's sound in the faith. He understands Christ died for me. Now I die daily for Christ and I love other people. So he's not the grumpy old man. But he's also not the jolly old guy that anything goes and he just clocked out and nothing is my problem anymore. No, he's not that guy either. Why? Because he's sound in the faith. He stands on the word of God and he says, this is right and this is wrong. So he doesn't go to that extreme where he just, whatever. He says, no, this is the truth. And so it's the grace of God that keeps an older man balanced. He's focused Sound in faith. He's sound in love, and he's sound in steadfastness. That's older men. We've got some of those around here. Older guys who you just love to be around. They have this respect and dignity about them, this honorable nature about them that when you're around them, you just love to hear them talk. We need that. We need that kind of wisdom. We need that kind of nurturing of uh, younger generations by those, those older generations. And if you're here this morning and you're not an older guy yet, you will be someday, right? So this is what we're aiming for. This is what we're looking for. So it's older men. Now what about older women? Verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Four things that Paul talks about here when he talks about older women 
And again, how old is an older woman? Well, I don't know for sure, although Paul uh, said that uh, widows had to be at least 60 before they could go on the church rolls uh, to be supported by the church. So perhaps 60, I don't know, perhaps 40, somewhere in there, uh, they become an older, older woman. But the first thing that characterizes them is that they're reverent in their behavior. And Paul is describing there their demeanor, their way of life, it's a term, it's only used once in all of the New Testament. Um, but in other writings, it's a term that was used to mean to act like a temple priestess. And what the author had in mind is there was a devotion, there was a holiness about a temple priestess that at least that aspect of her life was something to be admired. She was devoted. She was reverent. She honored her God. And Paul says, this should characterize a Christian woman. She should be reverent. She should be holy. She should be uh, an honorable woman. When I think about an older woman who's reverent in behavior, I think about Anna in Luke 2. And if you go back and you read about Anna, Anna was 84 years old. And at 84, she was a widow. She was 84 years old. And at 84, she would still go to the temple every day to pray. She was that kind of woman. She was a holy and a reverent, devoted woman, unparalleled in her time. A reverent woman is also a woman who's humble and who's meek and who's modest. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul even addresses how these women dress. Uh, Paul says, uh, modest women adorn themselves in respectable attire with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. They're reverent in their behavior. They're reverent even in the way they look. Have you ever been around an older woman who still trades clothes with her teenage daughter and tries to pull it off? It's embarrassing for her and for everyone else who sees. Why? Because that's not who you are. That's not what an older, how an older woman looks. And so there's this sense in which this reverence thing applies all the way through life. And by the way, the same thing could be said for a 60-year-old man who tries to slide into skinny jeans and leather jacket, and you just think, ah, where are your kids? <laughs> Somebody needs to help you out, friend. There's a reverence in the behavior of an older woman. And when this older woman's got it, when you see an older woman, you, you're around an older woman, you witness how she, she be, can, uh, conducts herself, and she's got this reverence, there's a sense about when you're around her, you have this respect for her. And when she speaks, you listen. There's this mannerism that just attracts your attention and you pay tribute to that kind of a woman. Secondly, Paul says an older woman is not only reverent in her behavior, but she's not to be a slanderer. A slanderer is someone who says harmful things about another person. A slanderer is someone who picks up on gossip and they kind of spread it. Literally, the word means to throw things. In other words, a slanderer takes words about people and they throw them. They throw things at them. They're harmful in how they speak. 
For a godly older woman, rumors and half-truths, if they ever even make it to her in the first place, they end at her doorstep because she is not a slanderer. I think it's fascinating if you look up this word slanderer in your Bible. If you look up the original word, this word appears 37 times in the New Testament. Out of those 37 times, only three is it translated as slanderer. You know what the other 34 are? Devil. Devil. To slander someone is devilish. A babbling, judgmental woman is devilish. It's ugly. It's unattractive. It's wicked. And Paul says that's not what characterizes godly women, godly older women. And perhaps Paul addresses this. I don't know for sure, but perhaps Paul brings this up because older women often have more time on their hands and there's a unique temptation to spend that time talking to others in perhaps a gossiping kind of way. Paul won't have it. He says that's not what characterizes godly women. So he says they're reverent in their behavior. They're not slanderers. And thirdly, he says older women must not be slaves to much wine. Now, if you think about being a slave to wine and being a slanderer, the two often go hand in hand, right? Because when a person drinks a lot of wine, this gate that normally stops free-flowing thought from exiting is gone, right? And so a person who drinks, oftentimes they just... They, we call it diarrhea of the mouth. They just they keep going and it just all comes out, right? That's what wine does. It, it lowers the inhibitions and it allows this free-flowing speech. And Paul says, you know, godly women aren't addicted to much wine. They don't use it to drown out life's problems. Uh, they don't use it as their pastime. And they certainly don't want to participate because it can lead to then other issues uh, in their life. It's not attractive. It's going to turn off the watching world if they see that kind of behavior. And the last one in this list, I think in, in some ways, is, is perhaps the biggest one on this list. We're going, to, we're going to look at part of it today, and then part of it applies next week whenever we talk about younger women. Um, but he says, look at there at the end of verse uh, 3. He says that older women are to teach what is good, and then he goes on into verse 4, and so train the young women. Older women are to teach what is good. Now this word teach here, uh, again, is an interesting word. It only appears one time in all of the New Testament, this particular word. It's not the word that Paul uses for formal kinds of teaching. What Paul has in mind here, and what this word represents, is an informal kind of teaching. It's basically a life on life. It's a living lifestyle. It's, it's, It's not specifically forbidding women from formally teaching other women, and there is a place for that. But this verse, what it's talking about, is for godly women to come alongside younger women and to teach them what is good. To teach them what is good. One of the things that has infiltrated our culture today is this idea of uh, worldly uh, feminism. And it tells younger women uh, to forget about their families Uh, And to find fulfillment in a career or in a new romance. And so godly older women 
are to come along and talk to the younger women and to teach them what it means to love their husbands and to love their children. We live in a daycare generation. It's the reality of where we live. And older women are to model then how to love your husband and your children in this high-pressure culture in which we live. Because it doesn't always come natural for women to be able to love their husbands and to love their children. And I've been in enough uh, premarital counseling cases uh, to know that there's a lot of couples, not all of them, but there's a lot of couples who are just in love with the idea of being in love. And they come in and they're, they're all they're looking forward to this marriage, they're looking forward to children, and, and that's great. But then when the husband, after they're married, starts to work late, or he doesn't like the meatloaf that she fixed for him that night, or the children aren't sleeping well, or they're not getting along well, and her world just sort of seems to be closing in on her, and she, she's thinking, what has, what has happened to me? How did I get in this situation? It's at that point when she doesn't need an older woman to come along and try to teach her formal theology. What she needs is for an older woman to come along and put her arm around her and say, Honey, I've been there. I know what this is like. I know how difficult this time of life is. Let me help you. Let me show you. Let me tell you how I worked with my husband. Let me tell you what I did with my children. And there's this sense in which she's just coming along with her arms around this young woman and she's saying, I want to give you an embrace. Let's meet for a cup of coffee. Let's meet and just talk about what's going on in your life. Let me listen to you. Let me guide you. And older women, let me encourage you and maybe challenge you uh, here in our church I would, fi- I would challenge you to find young women like this and to come alongside them. Start with your daughters. Start with your granddaughters. Start with your nieces. G- go there. But then also look around because I have had young women come to me in our church and say, I wish I had an older woman that would just come alongside me and just help me. Just help me. Maybe it's something as simple as having them over, teach them how to make the favorite apple pie that you always bring to the church lunch. Maybe it's just showing them how to stitch up something on their uh, tear on some church. Maybe, maybe it's lunch. Maybe, I, I don't know. It doesn't have to be anything formal. Just coming alongside and saying, I love you. I know that life can be a challenge. I've been there. Let me help you. As older women... Older men and older women, I am convinced, have a lot to offer our church. I don't want to see them go. What would we do without those generations of wisdom? I think one of the strongest forces of spiritual ministry that we have in our churches are our older generations. And so my plea is this. Don't clock out on us. We need you. We need you. And oftentimes when, when folks retire, it's at that point when they have more time that they can invest in younger men and in younger women. And so I challenge you to come alongside us and do that. John MacArthur once shared this. He said, 
Moses was 80 years old when God called him to lead Israel. 80. And he gave many excuses, but age was not one of them. So don't underestimate your capability. He also says this, John Wesley, many of you have heard of John Wesley. John Wesley traveled 250,000 miles by horseback or on foot to preach. He preached 40,000 sermons, produced 400 books, and he knew 10 languages. At 83, he was annoyed that he couldn't write for more than 15 hours a day without hurting his eyes. And get this, at 86, he was ashamed that he couldn't preach more than twice a day. And he said this, Since his 86th birthday, he had to admit there was an increasing tendency to lie in bed until 5.30 a.m. Older man, older woman, be encouraged. We need you. God will use you. We want you to be part of our church. All right? Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for the older men and older women in our church who model these things that we've just studied. God, I'm thankful that we have among us those who live out these characteristics. Father, I pray that as I get older and as others get older, that we would aim for this type of behavior that we would want to be reverent and sound in our doctrine and holy, all these things. Father, I pray for our older generations at Providence and around our community that uh, you would use them to teach us, to train us, that we would come uh, under their wisdom and learn from them. And Father, I pray that as they challenge themselves uh, to lead these kinds of lives, that you'd be fruitful. And they would find it such a joy, not because they have to, not because they're obligated to, but because you've loved them so much and you've provided models for them in life that they want to carry on those same traditions with others. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus through whom uh, all these things are possible because it's his grace that keeps us on this road. It's his grace that keeps us balanced and from going from extreme to extreme. And so we thank you for the cross of Christ. And I pray that you would keep us in your good grace as we live out these principles. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.